Next week, we'll wrap up the, the, the series. It's been a good series. I feel like people have been really engaging and taking these things away into their private time. It's been an uh, encouragement to me to just see how, as we just teach through simple truths of Song of Solomon, people's hearts are coming alive. So uh, what we'll do today, rather than just going straight and doing chapter 6, we'll take chapter 6 and part of chapter 7. And then next week, we'll take the end of chapter 7 and the rest, uh, the chapter 8. We'll, we'll kind of take these last three chapters in two weeks. And uh, as I've said before, we're really just hitting the high points. We're not going uh, in an exhaustive way uh, into this study. We're kind of hitting the high points and setting a table so that if you want to go deeper, you can. You can take these notes, and there's other resources online you can find and just really take this into your time of study. Okay, let's uh, look at Roman numeral one. We want to review last week. Last week was uh, chapter five where the, the whole idea of chapter five is the dark night of the soul. It's a term that's coined by a, uh, a monk in the, in the 16th century, St. John of the Cross. And, and essentially it talks about those seasons of time in life when as believers... You go through trials and, and suffering, and you don't sense the presence of the Lord. And uh, many of us can relate to those seasons where God's quiet, or when just bad things happen, trials and challenges and sufferings. And oftentimes, uh, in spirit-filled churches, we don't have a lot of theology for that. We don't tend to, to want to talk about you know, what happens when you're going through trials or sufferings. But uh, the scriptures are full of expression about what it's like when believers go through hard things. And uh, Peter is probably the, the foremost theologian in the New Testament. First and Second Peter, he unpacks a, a detailed theology of suffering. And we kind of just touched on that last week. Well, in, in the story with the maiden in Song of Solomon, here's what happens. She, she hears the bridegroom's voice. She answers the bridegroom, and she opens the door, and he's gone. He's not there. He's, he's, he's gone off into the night somewhere, and the night represents those times of trial and, and challenge and suffering. And so she follows him out into the night, and, and she can't hear him. She can't see him. And she can't find him, and it's in that place of, of the night that she experiences separation. And it's not because she's been disobedient, it's because he is inviting her to experience uh, another facet of who he is. He's inviting her to experience him and, and what he's experienced as one who suffered. And so she is looking for him in the night, she's pursuing him. And what she does is she finds uh, the watchman of the city, and she, she says, have you seen him? Well, what happens is, unfortunately, the watchmen, they beat her. They actually abuse her, and the watchmen represent um, authorities. And so here she is. She's in the night without the presence of God, looking for him, but she can't find him. And she experiences actual um, abuse at the hands of, of leadership and it's, a, it's speaking of trials and challenges that many of us have gone through. And uh, it's in that place of trial that she reaches out to other believers. And she says, hey, if you've seen him, please tell me where he's at. And then they answer and they say, well, what is he more than another? 
And what we get in verse 10, like verse 10 through 15, it's one of the most powerful expressions of love and the beauty of Jesus in the entire scripture. Here she is in the dark night. She can't see him. She doesn't feel him. She's experiencing difficulty and trial and suffering. And when they say, well, what is he that you would even look for him like this, that you're, you're going after him? What is he? She explodes and she says, he is radiant. He is dazzling. He is the, the fairest of 10,000. His, his head is the finest gold. His, his locks are waving black as a raven. She just goes on and on and on expressing the beauty of Jesus. And so it brings us to this place where we, we realize that the Lord will take us through seasons of trial in the, in the dark, and it's in those seasons that he will become more brilliant to us. He'll become far more beautiful, more precious to us. Have you ever found that when you're in those challenging seasons of trial, everything sort of just burns off, all the fluff just sort of burns off, and you get to that place where I just need you, Jesus. You're the most precious thing there is. I just need you, Jesus. Well, he does, the, he does that intentionally to deepen love in our heart and to bring us into a greater revelation of the knowledge of him. So she comes through it and she expresses her heart of, of uh, desire for him, his beauty to her, and then she, she ends and she says, he is altogether lovely. He's altogether lovely. He is my friend. He is my beloved. He is my friend. And so what you find is through that season of the dark night, she's unoffended. She's, not, she's actually not blaming him. She's unoffended in love. And that's what the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be able to digest the seasons of our life, understand the myriad activities of heaven, the way that he leads, trust his leadership, even when we don't feel him, see him, even when it's painful at times, to trust him and to come through those seasons and have that same heart where we say, you know what, I, I may not understand all this, but you're beautiful to me. You're lovely. I, 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 I'm yours. You're my friend. And, and, and I'm yours. And that's what she comes through. It's just a power. I love that chapter. It's just a powerful testimony of growing in love and, and maturity. All right, so that's our summary. And that brings us to chapter 6. Ultimately, the dark night works great maturity in the bride. Just know this. When you're going through a season of trial and suffering and challenge, it's for your good. It's going to deepen love and grow you up. It's going to grow you up. It's going to cause you to become mature. And the, the, uh, the pleasure of mature confidence in love it far outweighs the trial of the dark night seasons. The benefit far outweighs the difficulty. And so here we are. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Uh, the, the daughters of Jerusalem are responding to her. Now she's had this explosion of, of expression and beauty of the, of the bridegroom to her. She's still in the dark night. And then here's what the daughters of Jerusalem, who represent other believers, here's what they say. They say, where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? 
And this is what happens when you have somebody who goes through trials and challenges and they stay unoffended with Jesus. They stay in love with Jesus through the difficulties. People are always watching. I'm surprised at how often somebody has come to me in my Christian walk, not necessarily just because, I, like a church person, I'm talking about an unbeliever or somebody I didn't know through, you know, through the ministry, and they've come to me and they've said something like, I've been watching how you did this. I've been watching your life. I remember when I had a, uh, a sales job and I was uh, getting ready to transition and I had all these uh, associates and I was, tr- I was a young man. I was trying to preach the gospel to everybody every chance I could. I probably did it really badly a few times. More zeal than wisdom, you know the kind. And, uh, and, and I'm getting ready to transition and there's a few people there that I'm sure just hate me. I mean, I just know they hate me. And so um, I'm on my last day of work, and my office, it turns into like a counseling office. I'm like 20, 21 years old. And, uh, and all of a sudden, these people that I, I was sure just despised me, they would come and sit down, and they'd say stuff to me like, I watched you. The whole time you were here, I was watching. And, uh, and I remember uh, the, the one guy who was like this party animal guy. He goes, man, I really respect your Christianity. I'm looking at him like, you respect my Christianity? Impossible. I mean, this guy mocked me for, you know, the entirety that I worked there. And, and I remember this other woman who was one of the salespeople with all the, the big accounts. And she came and she sat in my office and she said, you know, I've I really liked working with you. I'm like, you've liked working with me? You've hated me. You've been mean to me every day. I mean, I can't imagine. Yes. And I see that, you know, she said, I see that you're, you're, you're one of those real Christians. I'm looking at this like, you got to be kidding me. But guys, people are always watching. They're always watching. Sometimes they don't tell you that they're watching, but they are. Well, here's one of the greatest testimonies is when Christians go through trials and they come out unoffended, the people around, they're paying attention and they're looking, they're seeing how we're going to walk through that. Now, I don't want to put pressure on you, but that's, that's not the point. The point is, in the trial, we find him. We hang on for dear life. And even if you, you come through it, what feels like a C minus D plus kind of way, like hanging in there, the fact that you hang in there and you're unoffended with Jesus, it transmits a message to others. He's real. He's real, and he's worth it. He's worth it all. And so here's what's going on. They, they, they've watched her go through the dark night. They've heard this expression of her heart. He's beautiful, all these things. And they say, now where is he? We want to find him as well. So they decide to search for him too. It's caused, her faithfulness has caused passion and desire for Jesus to well up in the heart of others. Beloved, that's ultimately a testimony we want. Faithful through the difficulties Hanging on, sometimes it's hanging on for dear life. Come on. Hanging on, faithful. He's still beautiful to me. I'm unoffended with how he leads. And then others see that and they go, there must be something special about him. There must be something special about him. Keep your heart from offense. It will be a testimony to those that are watching. So that's what they're doing. They're responding. They're saying, Where is he? We want to find him too. It's her unwavering devotion. 
even in the midst of trials, that's spoken to him of his virtue, his beauty, and it's compelling them to seek him. And uh, notice there in C, under Roman numeral 2, I just bring this point out. They call her the fairest among women. Well, in in chapter 1, he called her the fairest among women. This is what, the way that Jesus saw her, he said, you are the fairest, you are, you are beautiful. He was calling to her in her state of spiritual burnout and darkness in chapter one, and he says, I see the beauty of your heart. I see the yes on the inside. I see it's real. You're beautiful to me. He's calling her out of her darkness, calling her into her identity as an authentic lover of God. Letting her know that he says, man, you are beautiful to me. I, I, I love you. Your, your love is real. And he's speaking of the, the truths that are on the inside that, that she doesn't even recognize about herself. Well, that's in her immature state. Now, here we are, getting toward the end of the story. She's been through all sorts of ups and downs, been corrected, been through the dark night. And the people around her are now calling and, to her and noticing the beauty of her. In other words, what was just on the inside at the beginning is now manifesting on the outside. The truth that Jesus said about her at the beginning, others are recognizing. They're using the exact same phrase. You are the the fairest among women. There's something that's happened. That inner reality is now manifesting. It's notable on the outside. That's what happens to us. When we go through trials, we stay unoffended, we stay yoked with Jesus, pursuing Jesus. We don't even know it's happening, but there's a beauty, a light that comes on us. There's a, there's a, a, a sense about us where people recognize, man, there's something different about you. There's something about you. And uh, that doesn't come easy. That doesn't come easy. That comes many times through the difficulty. But I think that's notable that they actually see what was just in her beauty before she, they see it upon her. All right, let's look at verse 2. So she answered, she said, My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. She says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. The garden is the church and what's Jesus doing? He's feeding the flock. That's what he does. He's in his church in the different gardens, those, those local environments, those congregations all over the earth. And he's feeding the flock. And, uh, and so she makes this statement now where now, as, whereas before in the beginning of the, work she, uh, uh, of the song she would say, uh, my beloved is mine and I am his. Now she, the, the thing is flipped. She says, I am my beloved's. He owns me. I am his and he is mine. His desire is for me. And, uh, and she's recognizing that she's sincere in love and he loves her. It's a real thing, but she owns him. He has an inheritance in her. Okay, look at verse 4. We're just going to continue to move because I, I've got a little bit of ground to cover. So verse 4, he shows back up. Now this marks the end of the dark night. We, we actually have the dark night still going on. Until verse 3, because he hasn't shown up yet. Verse 4, he now responds. He shows up, and here's what he says. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Verse 5, turn your eyes away from me. 
for they have overcome me. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Go ahead and flip on over. That verse 5, that's one of the most crazy statements in all the Bible. I'll get to it in just a moment. So it's the first time he's shown back up. And uh, I want you to take note, and I give you a bunch of verses there in in B, uh, on the top of page 2. Whenever he addresses her, he calls her my love. Uh, uh, and in, in other words, he's always saying, I love you. Every time. Every time he's always saying, I love you. And, and every single time through the song, he either says, I love you, or you are beautiful, or both. He says, I love you, you're beautiful, or both. Here's my point in that. How do you hear God's voice? What is the way that he speaks to you? So often when believers, they say, they say well, the Lord spoke this to me, that he said to my heart, and they'll tell me stuff they feel like the Lord said. And at times, I, I mean, I don't ever just go, no, that, that wasn't the Lord, brother. I mean, I don't like just come out and tell them. But often I'm just listening to, the, to what they feel like the Lord is telling them, and there's all this negativity, this angst, this threatening kind of thing that the Lord, you know, they think the Lord is doing with them. And, um, and I would just say that I don't think that's the Lord. That's not how he speaks. He always speaks with a heart of love. Now you'd say, well, what about when he was rebuking the Pharisees? Well, yeah, he was rebuking Pharisees. <laughs> They're hypocrites. I mean, there's, we see Jesus, and he, he definitely um, exerts himself with those who were in the way of the ones that really wanted to serve God, who had exalted himself and justified themselves. We're not talking about how he talks to Pharisees. We're talking about how he talks to his bride. Come on. He doesn't fly off the handle at his bride. Hear me. He's, he's not yelling at, at his bride. He's not threatening. He's not throwing ultimatums. Okay? I mean, I, I get it. You know, there's some, we have bad examples in the world of husbandry. I get it. He's not like the bad examples. He's always, always tender. Even in correction, he's always tender. How do you hear his voice? This is critical. I realized for years the Lord would speak to me and I would apply a lens to his voice, a filter to his voice in my heart. I would hear it with a different inflection than he was giving it because I had a perspective of God that God was angry with me. He was dissatisfied with me. I imagined him to be upset most of the time. And so whenever I felt like I heard something from the Lord, I would just sort of filter it through and, and decide, man, he's upset with me and that's why he's saying this. Or I'm in, I'm in, you know, uh, I, I'm in trouble with him. And so there's a, uh, a way that he's coming at me. I'm not saying that there isn't a tremble when we're dealing with the God of the universe. We are. We, we, man, we are, we are dealing with one who is, I mean, all-powerful, almighty, all everything, Right? But he is in love with his people. 
He doesn't fly off the handle. He's not, he's not giving ultimatums. When he's speaking to you, he speaks in love. And that's what we get with the, the Song of Solomon. We see that his approach to his bride is always, you look good and I like you. That's just simply how I take it. You look good and I like you. And I'll tell you this, this has been a major um, education for me as a husband. Because realizing that Jesus speaks to the bride in that way, you look good and I like you. Guess what, husbands? That's right. We're supposed to love our wives as Christ loves the church. You better, I don't care if you're in an argument, you better start off with you look good and I like you. It will go better for you. You're going to lose, dude. You're going to lose anyway. You might as well start off the right way. You look good and I like you. Now let me have it. Seriously, it has changed the way that I, that, I, uh, that I relate to my wife. I mean, all the messages about how husbands should relate, you know, I had tons of marriage teaching in my life. But when I got the Song of Solomon, I understood, now this is how he's relating to me. He is, the, the, the voice that I hear is a voice of tenderness. The filter that I'm applying is my own from experiences and wrong images of God. Okay, let's get rid of the filter. Let's deal with this. You look good and I like you. So when he's speaking to me, even a correction, it's with that tender heart of, I like you. I really like you. Have I told you I like what you're wearing? You look good. And then he speaks. That's how he always deals with her. Notice when she's coming out of the dark night, when you've come out of times of trial, suffering, challenge, not hearing the Lord's voice for a while, what, is his, what are his first words? He says, you look good. You're beautiful. I love you. This is how he always answers. It's how he answered her when she repented, coming out of the time of disobedience. It's how he answers when she comes out of the dark night, when he interrupts her dark night and brings her back into revelation of intimacy. So often believers have that wrong filter. I mean, I want to deal with that this morning. That's not how the Lord's speaking to you. He's not trying to threaten. So often believers, they go, you know, the Lord... He said this to me, and it's like this mean threat. I'm like, that's not how he is. When he speaks to his bride, he's not that way. So he says, my love, I love you. You're as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem. Tirzah was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. It was a renowned city, and really it had impact on, uh, on the Canaanites, the, on uh, non-Jews, uh, unbelievers, if you, would, if you would. It had an impact on unbelievers in, in the region. It was a, 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 a massive city of, of royalty, beauty. And then Jerusalem was the, the capital of the southern kingdom of Israel, and it, it was there in Judah predominantly had a ministry or had an impact on Jews or believers, if you will. What is he saying to her? He's saying, you're beautiful, you're royal, you're mine, and 
what's going on in you, it's impacting. It's impacting those that are away from me and those that are closest to me. There's something happening in you. There's a mature love that's blooming in you that's real, and it has a real touch on other people's lives. And I don't know about you. I don't know, I don't know what makes your heart move. A friend of mine from Alabama used to say, I don't know what cranks your tractor. Anyway, I just flew right through. I just needed to get it out. But uh, I don't know what makes your heart move. But the idea that I can impact someone else and connect them to Jesus, talk to them about his beauty, and their heart begins to connect to Jesus, I, I want to I do that my whole life. And it's not about vocation, guys. It's about love. Ministry to others isn't about vocation. It's about falling in love. If you fall in love with him, you want everybody to fall in love with him. And the idea that I could grow into a place of confidence and love and maturity in Christ and, and, and you know, the, the terms in the New Testament, fullness or, or things like that, terms like that that talk about how I can impact others and draw them to Jesus, man, that moves my heart. I want to live that way. I want to live so near to him that there's something happening in me that's causing others to connect to him. Don't you want to do that? I want to know love in that way that is so transforming me It's just spilling over and touching everybody. That's what he says to her. He goes, this maturity that you're stepping into, it's awesome. It's like royal cities. He goes, there's two on my mind. One that impacts the world and one that impacts those in the kingdom. You're just like both of them. You've got got something happening in you that's impacting people in all sorts of scenarios in their life. And he says, you're awesome. I love that. You ever wonder what the Lord's saying about you? He goes, you're awesome. You're awesome. You're awesome is what? An army with banners. An army with banners is an army that's returned from the war victorious. He goes, you've made it through the fight. You've made it through the trial. You've made it through the test. You're victorious. You're awesome. You're like a victorious army in procession. Ah, you're beautiful. And then he says this crazy phrase. Verse 5, the first part, he says, Turn your eyes away from me. They've overcome me. Turn your eyes away from me, for they've overcome me. What are the implications of that? What are the implications... Of Jesus, let's just, let's narrow it down, you and Jesus, and Jesus looks at you, you're eye to eye with Jesus, and he goes, you gotta, you gotta stop looking at me, I can't take it, you, 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 wait, just hold on, this is too much for what, the way you're looking at me right now, it's overwhelming me, hold on, time out, I mean, I'm God, but I can't handle this. Just, whew, all right, let me look back. 
wow, okay, just hang on. What are the implications that God feels something so powerful on the inside, is so taken with his bride, that he says, you got to, you've got to blink, you've got to check your gaze for just a minute, because you're overwhelming me. You've overcome me. You've won me. You've triumphed over me. You awesome one. He goes, you're awesome as an army with banners. You're victorious to this extent that you've even overcome me. How do you think God looks at you? What's your impression of the way that he looks at you and and how that makes him feel? Do you imagine that he mostly looks at you with a, a look of disdain, like, hey, what's your problem? Come on. What about when you're struggling? Do you, do you think he's like, come on, like the mean coach. Come on, do it again. Do it again. I mean, how do you look at God? I'll tell you what. Most of us have a completely wrong image of God. And I'll tell you, we think that coming through the trial means, you know, you came through like some sort of, you know, action hero, like unscathed by the battle. You just kind of walked through all the bombs blowing up and you're just, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Victorious Christian. We imagine it's that way. I'll tell you what, faith is often manifest in the person that's just hanging in there against all odds. That's so often the manifestation of faith. There's no reason why they should hang in there, but they do. Faith often looks like hanging on. Come on. We want faith to look like you're going around just binding devils and blowing things up for the kingdom. I'll tell you, so often faith just looks like that person that didn't quit. Faith and faithful come from the same root word in Greek. They're, They're this far apart in the New Testament. Faith and faithful. Faithful means you showed up, you didn't stop, you didn't quit. It's the essence of faith. To show up, not stop, not quit. How does God look at you? You, you know, so often believers are like, I'm just struggling. It's just bad. It's just hard. It's just, I don't, God's not even, he doesn't even care. Or if he does care, he's upset because I'm not doing better. Let me tell you something. That's not how he looks at you. You're coming through the fight. You're coming through the challenge. You're coming through the trial. You keep showing up. You keep saying yes. And you know what the Lord's saying? You're overcoming me. I can't, I can't, even, I can't even stand to look at this. I can't even look at your eyes too long because they're so powerfully impacting me. Turn your eyes away from if they've overcome me. Really, you need to meditate on that phrase until it transforms the way you see him looking at you. Turn your eyes away from me. They've overcome me. They've overcome me. Listen, all the demons in hell and Lucifer himself cannot overcome God. But the steady gaze of the bride through the dark night undoes him. That's his people. That's us. It's one of the, one of the craziest, <clears throat> most awesome statements in the whole scripture. Turn your eyes from me. They've overcome me. 
Okay. I just I'm I skip forward quite a bit here. I'll just fill in the blanks a little bit if you want to take a note or two. He's going to then give her a few more affirmations of her maturity and her beauty. And then in verse 8 and 9, he makes this statement about the number of queens and and the number of young maidens and all these things. And and really what 8 and 9 he's saying there is this. He says, all these young women, all these potential queens, but you're the one that I want. You're the one I'm choosing. You're the only one. The favorite one. That's what he says in 8 and 9. So in 10, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole book. Who is she? Or who is this? There's two times that the the call goes forth to to pay attention to who the the bride is. It's here and it's in chapter 8. Who is this? Who is this? What's, what's why? Why is there a call going out? Who is this? Because she's being transformed. It's the, it's the, power, of, uh, the, the power of transformational love. The way that love transforms the heart. What maturity does in Christ. There's a who is this reality to that person. As they're growing in maturity. Going through the trials. Coming out unoffended. Anchoring to Jesus. There is a thing where it's like, now who is this? Man, what has gone on? They look different. She looks different. Who is she? Who is she? Who, I, I love the, there's, uh, the phrases, the way they roll off in the different versions. You should just read a bunch of different versions because the phrase, it just changes a little bit. So NKJV, who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the, uh, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I love that. And then the NIV. Who is this that appears like the dawn? Appears like the dawn. Fair as the moon. Bright as the sun. Majestic as the stars in procession. It's a a sort of an alternate translation. Who is this that appears like the dawn? What what, What is going on here? She is so transformed. There's such a brightness on her. The, the, uh, the, uh, the question is, what's happened to her that she looks like the sun? There's a brightness on her. She's appearing like the dawn. Now, what does that mean? That means the sunrise, when you, you know when you're out there that one time and you got up early and you watched the sunrise and it went boom and it exploded across the horizon? There's almost nothing as bright as that. I mean, just shabam, how the darkness just gets ripped in half by the the brightness of the sun cresting across the horizon. I mean, there's just almost nothing like that. He said, the question is, who is she that looks like that? She looks like the darkness fleeing from the light of the sun. That's what she looks like. She's clear like the moon. She's bright as the sun. Do you know anyone else whose face is like the sun shining in its strength? Only Jesus. Revelation chapter 1. His face, when John saw him, his face was shining like the sun in its strength. Guess what? She's starting to look like him. She's starting to look like him. 
What do you want? What do you want the outflow of your life to be? What do you want the outcome to be? How about looking like Jesus? So in his face that your face begins to change. We become what we behold. And she has beheld him through the dark nights. And all of a sudden she's looking like the sun. Beloved, this is our story if we'll choose it. This is ours if we'll choose it. It's it's available for any of us who will choose to hang on to him, to gaze on him, to stay focused on him, to love him with all of our heart in spite of the odds, in spite of not feeling it, to love him through it. I tell you, there's a transformation for all of us in love. This is our story if we'll say yes to it. And the different commentators, they're like, "Who's, who's asking the question? Some thinks it's the daughters. Some thinks it's the, the, the bridegroom. I don't care who it is. It's the peanut gallery of creation looking at the bride going, who is she? Man, she looks just like him. I love that. <clears throat> she looks just like him. She's reflecting his beauty. And then 12, she says this. She goes, before I was even aware my soul, it had made me as the chariots. The New American Standard said, has, uh, has, had, had put me over the chariots. The idea is this, in 12, it's that before she even knew it, she was stepping into uh, ministry in a way that was, was giving leadership to others. Chariots of my noble people, talking about leadership to others in the church. There was, a, there was a maturity happening that she wasn't even recognizing. And all of a sudden, she finds herself where she's actually ministering to others. She's actually leading others. and It's just the natural outflowing of that mature walk with Jesus. Now, uh, what we have, I'll, I'll just fill in the blanks as we're just coming to an end. What we have at the end of six is this, it's this phrase, the dance of the two camps. And one group says, man, the, the uh, Shulamite, return that we can look at you. The other group says, uh, uh, what do you see in her? In other words, there's a group that she's ministering to that's saying, man, we love who you are, mature bride. We love what you've become. We want to look at you some more. We want to we engage with you some more. But then there's another group that's saying, we don't care about you. you. You know, it's a critical group. They're saying, what do you see in her? What would you see in the Shulamite? What's so special about her? It's that, it's that thing that happens that when you start seeking Jesus and you start growing in the Lord, that there's always going to be an opposing voice. There's always going to be a critical voice. There's always going to be that voice of, of, um, of negation that tries to steal what God is doing. And so she has these two contending voices, one speaking of, uh, of affirmation towards her and the other speaking of negation, saying she's not, she's not really worthy, she's not worth anything. And so what you end up with in chapter 7 is uh, the, one, the group of positive folk in the first five verses, is it? The first five verses, the group, the group of positive folk, now they are affirming 
her beauty and affirming her maturity. Whereas in the past, it would be the bridegroom coming. Now we have a group of believers saying, no, no, she's beautiful and here's why. And they unpack uh, uh, whatever it is, 10 uh, virtues of, of her beauty. And then what we have is in chapter 7, verse 6, then Jesus comes and he begins to vindicate her and speak of her maturity and call her into mature ministry and partnership with her. And so if you're working through chapter 7, I'm just sort of, I'm kind of moving quickly past those. But what you have there is the first five verses, it's believers who, who are embracing her ministry and, and speaking affirmatively of her of her, her uh, beauty and her, her growing maturity. And then you have Jesus coming. He's vindicating her and, and, and speaking powerfully and positively of her. And then we come back to 10. And we're just going to end with this. And she says the statement again. I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. And uh, I just give some language there. But it's just, this is it, beloved. This is, this is where we all This is all of our destiny to go to this place of confidence and love. Confidence in the love of God. It is is what trumps every other impulse of the human heart. Confidence in the love of God. Knowing that God loves you overcomes every other possible platform or title or anything you could ascribe to. Confidence in his love. Knowing that you have his affections. Knowing that you're the object of his desires. And so this is where she is. She's secure in love, even in the face of accusations from other believers. She's secure in Jesus' love. That's where we need to get. I'll be honest with you. There's times I feel so at home in the love of God. I feel so secure. It's like, you just say anything you want to about me. He loves me. It's okay. And then there's other times, man, I'm so freaked out by what everybody's opinion is. I'm so worried about all the challenges and trials. I'm like, oh, I just find myself just trembling under the, the issues of life and, and leadership and ministry and all this stuff. And it's in those moments that I've just got to come back to this place and go, wait a minute, why am I even doing any of this? Right. Because you love me. You love me. I'm yours. I am yours. And you love me and you care for me. And And you're mine. It's real. My love for you is real and your love for me is real. And that's it. And that might sound like so simple, but I'll tell you, that's the basis of success. All success comes from knowing this, that you are loved by God and you're a lover of God, period. It doesn't get better than that. And that's what she's espousing. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I, I am his inheritance and he is my inheritance. He is my portion. And so what we're seeing is this key to spiritual maturity. Confidence in the love of God through everything. Confidence that your gaze, that it overwhelms him, it overcomes him. This is our portion. This is what's available for all of us. This is why maturity in Christ is, you know, we can think of it as like, sometimes I think it just gets a bad rap when we use that term maturity. We, we, I preached a series about uh, being filled with the fullness of God and talked about Christian maturity just, just recently. And, and I, I just think that that idea of maturity gets a bad rap because maturity isn't the person that keeps the rules the best. Maturity isn't even the most organized person who never forgets anything. I mean, some of us 
Some of us personality types would be just out. If it was like, you can't forget anything, you gotta be on time all the time, you gotta have everything in place, you gotta be perfect, that's mature. If that, if that was the litmus that you gotta do everything just perfect, never forget anything, never forget anybody's name, I mean, I'd just be totally out. Maturity is about whose heart gets confident in love. At the core, that the governor is this, that you're loved by God. And you're unmoved by everything else. Because you know he loves you and you know you're his. That's the basis of spiritual maturity. And it's from that basis that everything else flows, guys. Amen.